Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, that passage in, in Luke chapter 15. And uh, I, w- I want to do something a little bit different this evening. That's always worrying, isn't it? Whenever someone says that. But what I want to do this evening is, is maybe uh, I want to almost extend the, um, the teaching time. And uh, if, if we run out of time, you can pray on your way home. But, uh, but I've got a lot of information that I, I hope is relevant and useful. So I, I, it might take about an hour and a half to get through. But at the end of that, hopefully we will have learned something. Um, and as I said that, I could sense in the room, panic. I'm not really going to preach for an hour and a half, don't worry. But the point I wanted to begin with today is by saying that, isn't it obvious that what we say and what we do can so easily divide opinions? Some of you were thinking, oh no, he's going to speak for an hour and a half. I was up for it. I, I, I've got quite a lot to get through in, in my notes. I can speak for an hour and a half easily. I don't even have to breathe when I'm preaching. But how easily actions and words divide opinions. If I was to say X football team is the best football team, there would be uproar, wouldn't there? There'd be division in the church, in the body of Christ. So often words and actions divide people. And as we come to Luke chapter 15, this is really what I want you to have in your mind. Because what Jesus tells a parable, but the reason why Jesus tells this parable is because his words, his actions, what he is doing and what he is saying causes great division. And this is what uh, the parable that Jesus tells in order to try and quench that division, to try and show that there is division here, but some are right and some are wrong. What we clearly see here is that some people grumble and moan and other people find great joy and great delight in the way that Jesus responds. And it's a challenge to our hearts. Are we in the grumblers and the moaners? Or are we rejoicing in what the Lord is doing, in his character, in his nature, in who he is? So my first point as we think about this passage is, uh, is really picked up from, from verse 1, which opens by saying, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This is really what divides the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the, the scribes. They cannot understand how Jesus is receiving sinners. My first point is receiving. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. They wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to spend time with him. Now the sinners and and tax collectors were, it's almost a catch-all category for the worst of the worst. Now, I'm sure not many of us here like tax collectors. But if your tax collectors were collecting money for an enemy state, you would be livid. Uh, I I think one of the closest comparisons we have is probably the situation in in Russia and Ukraine. Imagine somebody, a, a Ukrainian, who was collecting money 
your money, your taxes to give to the Russians who have come in and invaded by force. That's the sort of parallel, that's the sort of vile disgustingness, that's the sort of uh, shunning that society would have done to those tax collectors. Completely pushed them aside. And he's also refers to sinners drawing near to Jesus. Well, they, these were people would have been, I mean, there's sinners and there's sinners, isn't there? These people would have been sinners. These people would have been people who would have publicly, everybody would have known that they'd done things wrong. Maybe people would have gossiped about them as they walked about their business and about their day. Clearly what they'd done was public because everybody could identify who they were. And these were the people who felt comfortable around Jesus. Verse 1 says that these people, the worst of the worst, were drawing near to Jesus. And I want to address one point very, very quickly but very strongly. It's interesting that these people felt comfortable around Jesus. And my question is really, as churches, are we the type of places that are the type of places that people from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life, from all different mistakes, draw near to? Or are we the type of people, the type of place that propels people because they think, well, I'm not good enough to go to that church. I'd have to buy a new tie and a new suit to go to that church. I'd have to be much better in my moral standing to go there. I can't go there. It's interesting that Jesus was somebody who drew people to himself. And the question is, how did Jesus draw people to himself? Well, I want to be absolutely clear that Jesus was not soft on sin. Some people say, oh, well, of course Jesus welcomed these people. Of course they wanted to be around Jesus because he never told them off. He never called them out for their sinful life or sinful behaviour. But actually we have many accounts of uh, the woman who's caught in adultery. Jesus says, go and sin no more. He addresses the seriousness of sin. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses sexual sin. He addresses divorce. He addresses uh, not fighting back. He addresses dishonesty. Jesus does not shy away from calling out people's sin. Jesus does not water down God's view of how bad and dark and perverse sin is. But I think one of the fundamental differences is that Jesus treated people like people. Jesus cared about people. Despite their sin, despite their tax collecting, despite all that they'd done wrong, Jesus treated them as people. He cared about them. He loved them. And I think there's two extremes that we need to make sure that we don't go one, to one extreme or the other. One extreme is to stand so firm on biblical truth that every time a sinner walks through the door, you pounce on them. And you say, oh, I've got the exact verse for you. The danger is that we become so 
caught up in what the Bible says and in biblical truth that actually the way that we execute it is so different to the way that Jesus executed it. Sometimes we can be so um, readily available with our knowledge, with our doctrine of what the Bible says about sin that we can forget how Jesus loved and how Jesus cared and how Jesus spoke about repentance. And so that's one danger. The other danger is we focus so much on loving people as they come into the church that we actually never get to the reality of what Scripture says about the seriousness of sin. And there's many churches that are full because, well, I mean, you, you, can't preach, you can't preach that bit of the Bible. That would offend people. People wouldn't like that in my church. And so we have to be very careful and very clear as churches. What Jesus seems to do is never shy away from what the Bible calls sin. Never shy away from the hardships and dangers of sin. But he also loved and cared and had concern for people. So much so that these tax collectors and uh, sinners were drawn to Jesus. Verse 2 says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. One group of people seems perfectly happy to gather round Christ. The other group of people start grumbling and complaining. And I want to be very clear that what the Pharisees and the scribes grumble about, what these people find wrong, what these people find hard and difficult is my greatest source of joy. And this is what I mean by, just, by dividing the room. One group of people says of Jesus, oh, let's complain, let's mumble, let's groan about this doctrine. Another group of people find that there is no other hope except for this truth. It's so sad when people grasp truth but are so far away from it. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes were annoyed about. But for us, it should bring us great joy. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the point that they could not stand this evening. Is there great gladness in your heart because Jesus Christ receives sinners? I don't know what your week has been. I don't know how good it's been, how difficult it's been. I don't know how uh, your personal holiness has been this past week. But I know in the reality and the goodness of God that Jesus accepts and receives sinners. I think the NIV uses the word, this man welcomes sinners. That's our God, isn't it? And the danger is that we as churches should not have the heart of uh, the Pharisees or the scribes. Well, I can't believe who walked into church. Did you see what they were wearing? Did you see what they looked like? Did you hear what they've done in the past? The great truth that they echo is that this Jesus receives sinners. 
Every single one of us in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, what is our hope? Before a holy God, what can we say? What can we plead other than Jesus receives sinners? That's our great hope in life. There's nothing else. We'll never get past that. We are unworthy to be loved by God, but my Jesus receives failures. People who have messed up, people who need saving from what they've done wrong, Jesus receives people like that. My second point is that this grumbling provokes Jesus to tell uh, a series of parables, really. Uh, but we're only going to look at one for, uh, for the sake of time. But this story illustrates that our God is a rescuing God. Our God is a receiving God and our God is a rescuing God. Verse 4 is how uh, the story begins. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. So Jesus tells this story of a sheep that gets lost. And we have to, we have to be incredibly honest that sheep are not the brightest of animals. However you want to put it, sheep are incredibly dumb animals. For this sheep to get lost, this sheep would have had to have gone out of its own way, left safety, and wandered off by itself. The sheep would have been nice and safe, and it probably thought, you know what, I want to go over there. And the sheep's gone over there, and then he thought, you know what, I'm going to keep on going. The sheep is in, I wonder if you ever considered that, that the sheep is in danger because of its own stupidity. I wonder, can that be applied to your life? Can it be applied to mine? That my, so often in life, my biggest issue is me. What I have done wrong, how I have failed God, my biggest issue is me. It's my heart, it's what I do wrong, it's how I'm so often easily led astray. I love the hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that the, the, the feeling of the Christian? That each day we are to put on the new man, the new self, and to... Oh, but the flesh. It's difficult to mortify and to subdue. It's, it's hard, and so often don't we wander astray? This sheep is in danger because it went on its own accord. Now, being well, sheep, sheep mean a lot to us, don't they? Especially when they're on a, a plate with a, a bit of mint sauce. But being well, sheep mean an awful lot to us. They're, they're almost like a national animal, really, aren't they? And we love sheep, but they are dumb. They are defenseless. They're incompetent. They're a bit of a nuisance, really. But we're Welsh, so they're our nuisances. And sometimes I wonder whether that's sort of God's view of us. These people are rebellious. These people are blind to their own sin. These people are lost because they got themselves lost. 
but they're still my people. I think this is the attitude that God has, for he is a rescuing God. He is not a God that leaves us wallowing in our own sin, in our own mistakes, but he is a God who has provided a way for all of your sins to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be washed away, to be dealt with. You've been led astray by your own desires or curiosity. We've all lived in a way that is unpleasing to God, But verse 4 says, this is how the good shepherd responds. And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. This is my God, a rescuing God. A God that goes after that stupid sheep that has got itself into a mess. That has messed up its life that has been rebellious, that has gone astray, the shepherd says, I'm going to go after this sheep. I'm going to retrieve it. I'm going to save it. I'm going to redeem it and rescue it and bring it back where it belongs. This is the testimony of every Christian there's ever been, that we have been far from God, but he's gone after us. And it says in the story that, uh, and I will go after the one that is lost for about 10 minutes. I'll shout around, but if I don't find it after 10 minutes, I'm going home because it's cold, it's dark, and it's its own fault. 99% isn't bad, is it? I've only lost 1%. That's fine. Nobody will count. Nobody will notice. That's fine. That's not God's mindset. That's not the mindset of the shepherd in this story. Verse 4 says, I will go after the one that is lost until he finds it. God will rescue and redeem and save all of his people. What a great encouragement. And we sang that hymn before, didn't we? That he will bring us into the flock. The love of God that brought us into the flock. This is the rescuing power of Jesus. I want to make the point that the sheep that is lost has no way of saving itself. That sheep is lost. Now, I, uh, in, in my life, I get lost an awful lot. Wherever I go, I seem to be lost. It's amazing I found my way here. I get lost wherever I go. But normally, I stumble around and eventually I, I sort of go, oh, I'm here, brilliant, and I carry on. This sheep is not able to stumble away. There is no way for this sheep to save themselves. I want us to be absolutely clear on this point. This sheep is lost. And there is no way the sheep has any hope, any future, except the love of a rescuing shepherd. The spiritual state that we were in is exactly like this that I have done so much wrong that there is no way I can come before a holy God. There's no way any of us would ever get to heaven. If anyone says, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven, I think they're guilty of the sin of arrogance, of pride, and I think they're on those grounds disqualified, let alone anything else. There's no way for us to get to God 
There's no way for the sheep to get back to the shepherd. And so the shepherd goes after the sheep. A heart of the shepherd that will not let that one sheep be lost. And the the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after that one. There's a lot of different views about what that means. Uh, I, I, I think historically shepherds work together. And so I think the 99 sheep that the shepherd leaves are safe in the the open country. And he goes, he leaves the 99, not satisfied with a big herd of sheep. For all of his sheep he will have. And all of God's people will be brought to himself. And what is a great encouragement here is, if you're a Christian here this evening, you were once that one lost sheep. You were once that one who was lost that Jesus Christ in his infinite wisdom and divine love thought, I am going to save them. I think too often as Christianity, we, we, as Christians, we can often think of, yeah, Jesus Christ will save the church, the universal church, the millions upon millions of people Christ will save. But sometimes we forget that actually, me. As an individual, he went after me. That on that cross as Jesus died, it was for me, for all of my personal failings, all of my personal sins. I was once that one sheep that the shepherd thought, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to abandon. I'm not going to let him continue to wander off. I'm going to rescue and save. Isn't that wonderful? That he came after us. In uh, Luke uh, chapter 19, Jesus has another encounter with a tax collector. And in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, it says the words, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank goodness we have a God who seeks and searches after his people. He came Looking for us. And then my third point is, is really the reaction that the shepherd has to finding the sheep. This sheep has gone astray, verse 5. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When a sinner is found, there is great rejoicing. That's my third point, rejoicing. Verse 6 continues this and says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I've recently had some uh, friends with uh, with good news, and they they called us over their house. We thought something was up. They called us over their house, and uh, we were, were chatting and talking, and then they told us, that they were expecting a child. I think it's public now, so uh, I hope it is now anyway. Um, But they told us that the good news that they were expecting a child. And what they were saying is that they hated keeping it a secret for as long as they had to. For all of the tests and all of the scans and all that waiting period that they had to wait. And they were delighted. They had good news and they wanted everyone to know. And that's exactly what the shepherd does. The shepherd invites his friends and his neighbours. 
Why? Because he wants to share in the joy. This is good news. The sheep that has gone astray is found. The sheep has been saved. And Jesus draws comparison to uh, the friends and the, uh, the neighbors gathering and being joyful. In verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When a sinner is saved, heaven rejoices. Now, I've got absolutely no idea what that means. Have a think about that. Think about it when you, when you go home. What does that mean? That, that heaven rejoices. Does that mean that when you professed faith in Jesus Christ as your only way to salvation, does that mean that the angels began singing? Does that mean that the angels began trumpeting? Does that mean that there was great celebration amongst the angels? Does this verse mean that saints who have passed away and, who have, and whose souls have immediately gone to be with the Lord, were they joy, do they join in with a praise every time a new believer professes faith? It's a really interesting thought, isn't it? That heaven rejoices. That heaven is glad over one single sinner Heaven is rejoicing. Can you see the divide between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and heaven? There's grumbling and moaning because Jesus has once again welcomed another sinner into heaven. Oh. And then there's heaven. Where whatever it means, I can't even explain or express the glory or the beauty, but there is rejoicing and praising and magnifying for Christ Jesus is saving his people. Every last one of them welcomed in. Every last one of them as adopted as sons and daughters. It is glorious. And over this greatest and glorious gospel, people find something to complain and moan about. I think we have to be incredibly careful. If we go out into the streets for the gospel, our hope and our desire is that people will be converted and saved. I think we have to watch our hearts and our minds that we do not become like the grumblers. Oh, if you see the web baptizing, he used to be a drug addict. He was addicted to everything. Can you, can you see how easy it can seep into the church? But the reality is that the greatness of our Lord, the, the love of our Lord, the rescuing power of our Lord should bring rejoicing when the gospel goes out. Not a hardness of heart like the religious leaders, but praise. And I want to personalize it because if you're a Christian here today, that verse, which I do not understand, presumably has happened for you. That heaven was filled with joy. When you came and repented, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your saviour, 
heaven rejoiced in you. Rejoiced in what God had done. How the, how the shepherd had rescued you. But I want to make a, a very important point just before I close. As we think about the joy that floods heaven, I think the most important verse regarding rejoicing, it has to be found in verse 5. Speaking about the shepherd. And when he had found it, he lays it upon his shoulders, rejoicing. The good shepherd rejoices when he finds his sheep. It's great that the friends and the family and, and the neighbours, it's great that they rejoice as well. But what's more important is that the shepherd himself rejoices. Let me be bold when I say this. That Jesus Christ delights in the salvation of sinners. Again, I want to personalise it just, to, just so it hits home. That, that actually... You have brought great joy to Jesus Christ. There's a hymn that we sing and it talks about, uh, and the son will have the, the prize for which he died, or the reward for which he died. Jesus Christ came to build his church. He came to die for sinners, to bring them to himself, to redeem them and to rescue them, Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. We read that in Ephesians. Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. We are living examples of the power of Jesus. That he delights in how he has transformed us. How he has renewed us. How my eternal destiny has changed. It brings joy to Jesus Christ. For he, for through us he has displayed his mercy. For through us his lavished love is visible. Jesus, who by his sacrifice upon the cross rejoices, is joyful. He is glad at the effect of his work. I don't think that's too great a stretch from this passage. The shepherd rejoices. He lays his hands on the sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulder. He has that sheep tight. Not letting them go. Never to be lost again. In your salvation, in what God has done in your life, it has pleased the Lord to bring you to repentance. One modern hymn puts it like this. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. We who were once far away, we who were once lost, he will not let our soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. That's a great truth, isn't it? That those he saves are his delight. The work that Jesus Christ has done in you, he has done because it glorifies his name. 
Because he is magnified and lifted up by the displaying of his mercy. It's wonderful. And then my final point, which will be uh, two sentences, don't panic. My final point I have to talk about is repenting. Verse 7 says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. I just want to deal with this straight on. Does this verse mean that there are some people who are so right in their standing before God that they do not need to repent? Is that what that verse is saying? Hopefully you're screaming out no internally. That is absolutely not what this verse is saying. The the Bible makes it clear, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What this verse is really alluding to is, right at the beginning, verse 2, these Pharisees and scribes, in their own mind, they had judged themselves righteous. In their own minds, in their own thinking, they had deemed themselves, they didn't need repentance, they didn't need to turn to anybody. In their own mind, they thought by what they did, by the rules that they kept, they thought in their own minds that they were good enough. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who who still have this view. If you ask a lot of people the, the, the question, do you think you're good enough for heaven? They'll often say, well, there's a lot of people who are far worse than me. So actually, if you balance it out, I I, I think I'm about average. It's interesting, and almost everybody in the world thinks they're about average in terms of morality. They all think they're sort of upper average. They all think, oh yeah, I'll, I'll make it. But there's a lot of people here who do not see the importance here in repenting. And so I I just want to simply end by asking the question, have you gone to Jesus? For the only way to be forgiven is to repent. Is to say, I do not want to be dead in my trespasses and sins. I do not want to be lost and uh, trapped and stuck, even though it was my own stupidity that led me there. To turn away. One uh, definition of repenting is to feel sincere remorse or regret for one's personal sins. To say, I'm here and I, I, I deserve to be here, but, oh God, I'm sorry. This is wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did. I shouldn't have been living the way I live. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to simply look to the shepherd who has come to get me. Have you turned to Jesus Christ? I love the verse in Isaiah that says, Turn to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved. It doesn't matter how far we went astray. It doesn't matter how lost we were. We have great confidence in the saving, rescuing power of our Jesus.